Mark chapter 13. God, we thank you for your word. We believe that it is right and that it's true. And we also believe, God, that everything you do is right and true. All your ways are just. Thank you that you're a righteous God and a merciful God. And today we just ask that you teach us about that righteousness, about judgment, and about mercy, and about grace. And God, you would do a work in this congregation now that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would respond. And uh, to respond to the word today, God, we're going to need your Holy Spirit, which is the power to make us able to do that which you command us to do. You've commanded us to take the gospel to all the nations. We need your spirit to do that. You've commanded us to be lights in our community. God, we need your spirit to do that. We also believe that we are the generation that is living in the last days. and We have a unique commissioning. We ask that today you would cause that commissioning to be transformed or, or increased to an anointing. You'd raise up from our midst today pastors and evangelists and missionaries and those that would go forth with the good news that we'd extend your hands into our community and into the nations. So stir in us as we look at your word. Keep us from fear. Deliver us into action. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Mark, and uh, we've come to chapter 13. We've been in chapter 13 for a few weeks, and chapter 13 has to do with the end-time scenario with Bible prophecy, and we're spending several weeks looking at it. And today we're going to look at something which is called the tribulation period. The tribulation period. It's something that in Scripture, uh, there's much said about it. It's mentioned over 49 times in the Old Testament, over 13 times in the New Testament. And in fact, the Bible has more to say about the tribulation period than it has to say about the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years. Tribulation is only seven years. It's got more to say about the tribulation period than it has to say about heaven, than it has to say about hell. In fact, there is more said in the Bible about the tribulation period than any other subject except for salvation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's so much that we can't possibly cover it in one message. And uh, last summer, we we taught a class on prophecy, a midweek thing. And there's a teaching online that I want you to go to and listen this week. Uh, That's your homework. You can go to our website and go to the messages page and you can search according to topic, search for tribulation or Bible prophecy, and there will come a message about the tribulation that will be helpful for you in addition to this one, because I'll be covering different facets of the tribulation in this message. Last time, we uh, really emphasized the role of Israel in the tribulation, and it really has uh, so much to do, in fact, overwhelmingly more to do with Israel than anything else. And so we covered that and some broad theological ideas. But today we're going to narrow in We see Jesus bring this event up here in verse 19, which is where we are in our text. Jesus says, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created, until now, and never shall. We see here that he says there will be a time of tribulation, and it will be the greatest the world has ever seen. Since creation, there's never been something like this tribulation period, and there never will be after it. There are those who hold to a view called the preterist view, and it basically teaches that all Bible prophecy has already been fulfilled, and the things that happened in the book of Revelation were fulfilled in the first century. 
As we go through the events today, you'll see that that can't possibly be so. Because the events outlined in the book of Revelation that we'll look at have simply not happened. It'll be very clear when these things take place, and they have not taken place yet. So we're talking about an event which is future, and it is a distinct period of time. It is seven years the Bible's clear about that from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that the tribulation period is seven years. It is not to be confused, the tribulation or the great tribulation that we're speaking about, with daily tribulations and trials. As Christians, we're going to have tribulations and trials. Amen? You know what I'm talking about. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But that is not what we're talking about today. There's a vast distinction between the two. We have trouble in this world because we're living in a fallen world. And we're told in the epistles of Paul that our citizenship is not in this world, but in heaven. And so we're sort of fish out of water, you understand. And this world is in rebellion to God, and so we're going to experience various trials and tribulations that we all have in daily living, and God will use them to grow us as Christians. That's cool, and that's great. But that is separate and distinct from the seven-year tribulation period, which is the wrath of God. You see, as born-again, forgiven, and redeemed Christians, we do not experience the wrath of God. The wrath for our sins was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. But what we're talking about in the seven-year period is the wrath of God. Now, here's when it takes place. Remember that chart I gave you a few weeks ago? If you have it, pull it out. If not, we've got it on the screen. All right, Shawnell's mom has it with her. On the screen here, you see this uh, very simplified chart of the end-time scenario and, and prophecy past. On the far left, we see the first coming of Jesus Christ, and then the cross. And then, of course, after that, we have the birth of the church. Now, from just after the cross until that arrow in the middle is what is known as the church age or the age of grace or the time of the Gentiles. It's the period of history in which we live. And really, as you take a broad view of Bible prophecy, it's really a parenthetical little time in history. But that's when we live. That period is soon to come to an end with the rapture of the church. Uh, the rapture of the church is when the Lord appears in heaven and catches those who are born again up to heaven to be with him, and then we are forever with the Lord. It is the next event on God's prophetic timeline. Uh, the timing of it is disputed. There's those within the church that do not think that the rapture is the next thing. There's those within the church that think we've got to go through the tribulation period, and then we're taken out of here, either in the middle or toward the end. But having investigated it thoroughly, I hold to, and this church holds to, what is called a pre-trib position on the rapture, that it happens before the tribulation. So for our purposes, we'll be teaching it in that way, and in a few weeks, I'll outline the arguments as to why I believe it happens prior to the tribulation. But the seven-year seven period that we speak of begins at the rapture of the church, and there you see it written out, tribulation, and it ends or it is, culminates in the second coming of Jesus Christ. God wants us to be aware of the tribulation period. As I said, it's mentioned more often in the Bible than, only, than almost any other subject. And in fact, Jesus says here in Mark chapter 13 and verse 23, he says, take heed, behold, or look, open up your eyes, be aware I have told you everything in advance. 
There's no reason for anyone to be caught by surprise regarding the end time scenario. He's told us in advance, and whenever God tells us something in advance, he will hold us accountable to that knowledge. Do you understand that? Listen to me, America. America is very rich in Bible knowledge. We're rich in Bible translations. We're rich in Bible resources and commentaries, so on and so forth. We have been given as a nation a tremendous amount of light concerning the Word of God. We will be held accountable for that light. And so listen carefully to the things that you're going to hear today and decide to be active about it. Concerning the tribulation period, we ask these questions. Why does it occur? What exactly takes place And who does it affect? So let's begin to think about it. Why is there coming? Why will there be a tribulation period? I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 6. It's hot in here today, huh? It's like the tribulation up in here with this heat. Don't be afraid to swing your thing and wipe your sweat. We're all in the same boat. It's all good. Why does the tribulation take place? The events of the tribulation are outlined uh, very clearly for us in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. Look now in Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? We see there, and we'll get the context in a few minutes, that these are people that are experiencing the events of the tribulation. And it is clear to them, and so it's clear to us, that it is the wrath of God. Why does the tribulation take place? It is the wrath of God poured out on an unrepentant world. We see it stated several times in the book of Revelation, very clearly again in chapter 16, verse 1. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. So make no mistake about it. Bless you. The tribulation period is not the result of um, man bringing about these events, although sort of a way in man's rebellion. It is not things that Satan is causing, though he is doing a lot during that time, but it is specifically and expressly the wrath of God. We see it in those verses, and we see it throughout the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 18, chapter 14, verses 7, 10, and 19, chapter 15, verses 1 and 7, and chapter 16, verse 19. The Old Testament tells us the same thing, that it is indeed the wrath of God. If we were to look in the wonderful little book of Zephaniah, in chapter 1, it says in verses 15 through 18, concerning this time period, that it is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. There's the reason. And their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. 
That's scary language. That's frightening. That is expressly the seven-year tribulation period, which is the wrath of God, listen, poured out on the unrepentant. The wrath of God poured out on the unrepentant because they've sinned against the Lord. Now, there's a difference between those people that will experience that and the Christian. It's God's wrath poured out on the unrepentant. If you are a Christian, you have repented of your sins. By definition, you're a Christian because you've repented of your sins. And you've received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the wrath that was due to you because of your sin has been placed upon Jesus Christ at the cross. He took the wrath for you. God is not going to double wrath anybody. And so because the tribulation period is the wrath of God poured out on the unrepentant, it is only sensible and logical that the Christians, the church, has been removed from the earth because their wrath has already been paid for by Jesus Christ and they have repented. Therefore, they don't endure it. It says in the book of Thessalonians that Jesus Christ is able to deliver us from the wrath to come. We'll talk a lot about that when we speak on the rapture two weeks from now. What's interesting for us to see is that this wrath of God is unleashed in stages. Not all at once, but in stages. There comes a series of seals, and then trumpets, and then bowls. In Revelation 6 through 8, we see these seals. They're seals that are broken open in heaven by Jesus Christ himself that release the wrath of God. The last seal, when it's broken, uh, releases seven angels and their trumpets. And then we have seven trumpets that herald the wrath of God. And then after that, in chapter 16, we have seven bowls or vials that are poured forth with more of the wrath of God. Keep this in mind as we move through this lesson. God does not do it all at once. He does not pour out his wrath on humanity all at once, but in stages, and it is ever increasing as we go. Why is that? We'll figure that out. So let's look at a few first of the seals to get an idea of what's going on. Revelation 6, where you ought to already be, verses 1 and 2. It says, And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus. You can read the previous chapter to get that. I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Do not confuse this with the white horse and the man on it in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus Christ comes to earth on a white horse to conquer. But this is the Antichrist coming to earth to conquer at the beginning of the tribulation period. So we see immediately Jesus breaks the first seal, and the first thing that happens is the Antichrist comes on the scene to conquer. We talked about last week how he would be the leader of the world and how he would oversee or he would rule a one-world government a one-world economic system, and eventually a one-world religion. So there's the release of the Antichrist. Let's look at the fourth seal now. It's interesting. In verse 7, it says, And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat upon it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them, over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. 
So now the fourth seal is broken by Jesus Christ. An ashen horse or a pale horse comes, and the one seated upon it is death, and Hades follows. Jesus Christ gives them authority to bring death to a quarter of the population of the world. Only Jesus Christ could give that authority. We're told that he has the authority over death and Hades, that he conquered death upon the cross, and he holds the keys thereof. And part of the pouring out of his wrath is allowing death to overtake a quarter of the world's population at this point. Now let's look at the sixth seal, starting in verse 12. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the wrath has come and who can stand? So we see in the sixth seal that there is our severe natural catastrophes that take place, that are released, the worst ever the worst that have ever taken place. So the Antichrist comes on the scene, establishes a world government. And then we see a quarter of the world's population begin to die according to famine and pestilence. And then we see these, st- these things happening on the earth, earthquakes and stars falling from the sky. But look what happens. I want you to know what we saw in verse 16. People said, fall on us and hide us from the presence of God. In other words, they would rather die than bow their knee to Jesus Christ. This is unbelievable. They say here, they admit that it's the wrath of God, but instead of turning to God, repenting and being forgiven, they would rather choose to die in their sins than to confess that they are a sinner. It's unbelievable. And yet it's the same situation in our world today. Moving on now, we'll go and see the trumpets. Go to chapter 8. We'll look at a couple of those. chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And when he, again Jesus Christ, broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So the last seal's broken, and then here comes the angels with the trumpets. And we'll look now in verse 6 to see a few of them. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and of the springs of water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten, so that a third of them might be darkened, and the day might not shine for a third of it, and the night the same way. 
Now we see as these trumpets are blown, that destruction, the judgment of God is released upon the earth and things are destroyed in thirds. We saw um, the trees destroyed in thirds and we saw that all the grass was burned up. We saw that creatures were killed in thirds and a third of the sea and a third of the waters, so on and so forth. So destruction is released now in thirds. It's getting progressively worse. Some of the things that were released in the seals, people could have said, well, that's just naturally occurring. Antichrist comes on the scene. He's just a great world leader. You know what I mean? And then a quarter of the world's population dies. Well, that was just famine and pestilence, and that wasn't anything from God. And then there's the earthquake, and the mountains are moved. Well, yeah, we're having some gnarly weather, and so on and so forth. But there's no mistaking now in the trumpets. When a third of the sea turns to blood and a third exactly of these living creatures are wiped out, they are beginning to see more and more that this is God, but it gets much worse. In fact, verse 13, it says, And I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So it's about to get progressively worse. Let's look now in chapter 9, verse 13, as it unfolds. Chapter 9, verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. As it develops in the next verse, we'll see that these are fallen angels, that they are demonic, that they're demons. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them. 200 million. Uh, Some time ago, a decade or more so, or a decade or so or more, I can't talk, a while ago, uh, Newsweek or Time Magazine, one of those companies came out with a... um, an article, or really a cover story, that China possessed an army of 200 million. Students of Bible prophecy had read in chapter 9 about this army of 200 million, and they said, China. Because we read in later chapters that the river Euphrates is dried up, and that the kings of the east come across the river Euphrates, and so they thought that, that, that might be China. And it's interesting if you look at China today, the way that nation is being built up. Look at anything you own, it is made in China. It is unbelievable. Start to trip out on it over the next week. Look at your clothes, look at your junk, look at your stuff. Over and over again, made in China, made in China, made in China, made in China. China is becoming an economic world power, a military world power. It's becoming a world power in in and of its own. But this army is not the army of China, I'm sorry. We'll see in the next few verses that these are demons, that this is a demonic army that is released. Look in the next verse. And this is how I saw the vision, in the vision, the horses, and those who sat upon them. The riders had breastplates, the color of fire, and hyacinth, I don't know that word, and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceed out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. China's making some cool stuff, but that ain't China. This is a demonic army of 200 million. 
And we're told here that they are given authority to wipe out now a third of mankind. A quarter has already been wiped out. We now see by this point in the tribulation that half of humanity is wiped out. 50% of those alive on the earth at this time are wiped out by the wrath of God. But here's what is even more amazing than that. Verse 20. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons anymore and the idols of gold and silver, the BMWs, and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor their, uh, nor their sorceries, that's often viewed as drugs, nor their immorality nor their thefts. This is unbelievable. It is clearer than day that God is pouring out his wrath on these people, but they're refusing to repent. They're saying, I would rather die than bow my knee to Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. What that shows is the utterly rebellious nature of man. Don't tell me that man is basically good. Don't tell me that. Don't speak that. Man is basically good. We're all, man is not basically good. Here is God pouring out his wrath, and rather than repent and say, okay, God, you're right, they continue in rebellion. They refuse to repent. They stiffen their necks against God. Man is not basically good. Man is wicked and rebellious. Now we see it get progressively worse in Revelation chapter 16. Go to Revelation 16. Revelation chapter 16, now we're going to see the bowl or vials poured out, depending on the translation that you have. Verse 1, And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Your homework last week was to read Revelation chapter 13. If you did your homework, you saw that there, in the tribulation period, the false prophet, the Antichrist right-hand man, forces people to worship the image of the beast, the image of the Antichrist. If they refuse to worship the beast, they are killed. They are also told that they have to take the mark of the beast upon their forehead or upon their hand. We'll read the scripture in a few moments. And if they refuse to do so, they are not able to buy or sell or trade. In other words, they will perish physically. They can make no transactions. The Antichrist has absolute authority and control over the world economic system. Unless you take the mark of the beast, you cannot buy or sell or trade. And now, for those that went ahead and worshipped the image of the beast, the Antichrist, and received the mark of the beast, God pours out his wrath upon them, and it is a loathsome and malignant sore upon them. Verse 3. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And the third, of the, angel, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. Look at that. Now the whole sea becomes like the blood of a dead man, stagnant, rotten and disgusting, and everything in it dies, and the same happens to the rivers and the lakes. 
all the water on earth, now everything dies in it, and it becomes like the blood of a dead man. I want you to notice that heaven announces that God is right and only does in verse 5. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous art thou who art and who was, O holy one, because thou didst judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Though these things are horrific, it begins to paint for us a picture of how horrible sin is in the eyes of God. And heaven declares here in the midst of it that God is right in all these judgments. That he's absolutely true in everything that he does. He's justified in pouring out these judgments. It's hard for us to see because we don't see sin the way God does. We see sin as something, oh, maybe shouldn't do it. No, I'll play with it a little bit. Preaching to myself right now. And we fool around with sin, but in the eyes of God, it is an abomination. His ways are not our ways. His, highs, his ways are higher than our ways. He is righteous and perfect and holy. And when we see the wrath of God, it begins to reveal to us the holiness of God. And it ought to change our perception about sin. No longer should we play games with the Lord. Continues on in verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. Now, come on. Ne- People got to be repenting now. So the ones who took the mark of the beast and worshipped, those ones are now thinking, that might have been a mistake. They've got sores and malignant tumors on them. Uh, The sun is beginning to scorch humanity, and you notice there's no relief from it. You can't go in the ocean. It's become rotten blood, and everything in it is dead. There's no springs to go to. There's no water to go to. There is now no water to drink as even the springs become this way. It is an intense heat. There's sores upon the body of men and there's no relief in the water. Now men have got to say, God, please, whatever I did, forgive me. Right? Next verse. Verse 9. And the men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. The rebellious nature of man. God is pouring out his wrath. Now, listen to me. He has poured it out slowly and in stages. As I mentioned in the beginning, he didn't do it at one time. If for God it were just about getting his wrath out, then he would wait till hell. See, the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. The Bible teaches very clearly that we decide eternity in this lifetime. And it's decided upon whether or not we accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for our sins. If we don't choose to receive his forgiveness, then we choose to spend eternity apart from him in a place called hell. It's not good there. Nobody has to go there. They choose to go there because they reject the forgiveness and the love of God. But if it were just about God's wrath, he could pour it out there in hell. But the problem is in hell, there's no chance to repent. If any religion or any church or any philosophy teaches that you can change your mind about eternity after dying, they're lying and they're wrong. There's no chance to repent once you've died. Today is the day to repent. But notice the mercy of God. He ordains a seven-year period in which he will begin to pour out his wrath slowly and in stages, thereby giving man chance to repent. You see, because man ignored God in this age of grace. In this age of grace, God is freely extending forgiveness to people. They can ask for it, and they can receive it. Simply. 
But they've ignored that, and so now, wanting to rattle them to repentance, he begins to progressively pour the wrath out. And men still don't repent. It's unbelievable. But what beautiful mercy of God that he ordained this seven-year period to try to get their attention. Didn't have to do it. Next verse, verse 10, And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, the Antichrist, and his kingdom became darkened. Starting to lose his power now. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. They know it's from God, and they refuse to repent. They would rather die in misery than repent to Jesus Christ. In the tribulation period, God shakes the very foundations of the world. Because as long as the world is all to put together, man is led to believe that he can exist without God. You know what I mean? As long as the stars aren't falling from the sky and the ocean is still there and this and that and the other, people think I'm okay. Everything's all right. God will shake the very foundations of that. He'll pull the rug out from underneath people's feet to try to get their attention. Here's the problem with people today. They see that God does not immediately deal out retribution today for sin and wickedness. And that is true. We, we see all sorts of wickedness today, and we sometimes, even as Christians, wonder, God, why don't you do something about that right now? But that's why you need to read the whole Bible. You need to read the end of the book. God is going to do something. Every wrong will be made every right. Every deed done in darkness will be exposed in the light. God is going to do something about it, but we're living in the age of grace. And he does not deal out immediate retribution for every sin. And what man does is they misinterpret that. Instead of saying, oh my gosh, God is having mercy on me. I'm sinning here and he doesn't immediately punish me. I should repent. Instead of doing that, they think one of two things. Either there is no God and I'm proving it with my actions, or I'm somehow getting away with it. I'm smarter than God. I'm sneaky, sneaky. He doesn't see. He turned a blind eye. Whatever. They begin to think that they're getting away with it. When in actuality, what is going on right now is God is seeking to draw people by his loving kindness. Look at Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. We have it on the PowerPoint. Romans 2, 4 and 5 warns people and says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Right now, his kindness should be causing men to repent. In the tribulation period, it'll be his wrath. And then it says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, the tribulation period. You see, people begin to think, I'm getting away with it. I'm pulling this off. When in actuality, they are storing up for themselves wrath. Every time they rebel against God, they sin, they go against God's word, they are laying up wrath for themselves that will be poured out in this period and in the life to come. But they misinterpret the kindness of God to think that they're getting away with something. And so in these last days, people begin to mock. You talk about the second coming of the Lord. Second coming of the Lord. He's not coming back. Nothing has changed in thousands of years. The Bible told us that people would think that. Second Peter, chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, doing whatever they want to do, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? 
You guys talk about a Jesus who is coming to judge. I'm doing whatever I want to do. I'm getting mine. I'm doing it my way. Where is he? And they say, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, in other words, ever since history passed, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You talk about a God that's a righteous judge. I don't see God judging everyone, anyone. Nothing is happening. History is just going. People live and people die, they say. But look what it says in verse 5. When they think this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water by water. In other words, it, ex- it escapes their notice that God created everything. And then secondly, water, verse 6, through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. They forget about the flood of Noah. They think God's not going to do anything. What's God going to do to me? God's just going to let everybody get off the hook. They forget about the historical account of Noah's flood. Why is it that every single culture in the world that has an oral tradition or a record has one of a flood, a worldwide flood? Investigate it for yourself. It's because there was a worldwide flood. God said back in Genesis, my spirit will not strive with man forever. Noah, build a boat. I'm bringing a flood. I'm going to wipe these people out. I'm giving you 120 years to build the boat. While you're building it, preach righteousness. Anybody that repents can go in the ark and be safe from my wrath. We know from history that nobody repented, that it was Noah and his family members alone. And God wiped out the world in judgment with the flood. Interesting, isn't it, though, that those who repent and righteous, namely Noah and his family, that they did not receive the wrath of God. They were in the ark. They were delivered. And so it is with the rapture of the church, delivering us from the tribulation period. So it was when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He had to send angels to righteous Lot to say to Lot, you got to get out of town. Because you're righteous, I can't destroy the city because you're here. God does not destroy the righteous along with, his ra- along with the wicked in his wrath. Righteous Lot, get out of town, and then I'll pour out my wrath. And so it is with Christians in the tribulation. We will be caught up to meet the Lord in the sky. We shall be safe with him. And then he pours out his wrath. But you see and you understand that it escapes humanity's notice that God has already set a precedent for judging the entire world, and it was the flood. And then it goes on to say in verse 7, but the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. It happened in the past, it's coming again. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not wanting for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. People say, where is this coming? He goes, I'm, I'm getting away with this. And it's God's patience not wanting to judge you. It says in John chapter 3, verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The last thing that God wants to do is have to judge anybody for their sins. He wants that judgment to be taken by Jesus Christ. That's why he gave his only son to die on the cross. That's why he is slowly releasing his wrath throughout the tribulation period, giving people time to repent. But now in the age of grace is the time to repent. He is drawing us by his loving kindness. He is not dealing out to humanity retribution for their every evil deed. But he is slow in his coming because he doesn't want people to perish. He wants them to be saved because he created you and he loves you. But, verse 10, but the day of the Lord, the New and Old Testament term for the tribulation period, will come like a thief. 
in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So in the tribulation period, God is trying to rattle people to repentance. Those who, in this age of grace, refuse to repent in light of his kindness in hopes that they will now repent in light of his wrath. And here's what's beautiful. We saw it expressed here. God does not wish for any to perish, but to all to come to repentance. And so in the midst of all this wrath, God will go to lengths to preach the gospel and to present the gospel during the wrath, the likes of which he has never done throughout history. Unprecedented measures to communicate the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to people in the tribulation period. Now here dawns a little bit of light in this darkness of the tribulation. Go back to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7. We're going to look at three ways that God attempts to communicate the gospel during the tribulation period. The first are these 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Read with me starting in verse... uh, Two, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. Now, you and I who live in the church age, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit according to the book of Romans. But here comes a different sort of seal. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Who are these bondservants? A lot of people think, well, No, see, the church wasn't raptured. Here they are. And God's merely going to protect them. Impossible. It reveals who they are in the next verse. It's not the church. Verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So in the tribulation period now, God saves, God redeems. There are a 144,000 born-again Jews, 12,000 from every one of the tribes of Israel. And these, according to the context, are evangelists. They are empowered by God and they are protected by God to preach the gospel during the tribulation period. And we'll see at the end of the lesson that there is a tremendous harvest that is reaped from their efforts. So here are these gnarly evangelists. Jewish, going around and preaching the Messiah, sealed by God visibly on their forehead, protected by God from the wrath of God, and doing the work of the evangelist. We see another way that the Lord attempts to communicate, even uh, a more wonderful way, a crazy way, in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, we see now two witnesses. We saw in chapter 7, 144,000. Now we see two. And look at these guys. They're rather unique. Starting in verse 3. Revelation eleven three, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in, ash, in ashcloth, in sackcloth, excuse me. They prophesy for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. 
Everything in the book of Revelation, indeed any years mentioned in the Bible, are according to an ancient calendar, both the Babylonian calendar and the Jewish calendar, which was made up of 360 days, not 365 plus a leap year like us. So when you're talking about Bible prophecy, a prophetic year is 360 days. So 1,260 days is exactly three and a half years, exactly half of the tribulation period. So we see these two guys who are given authority to be witnesses and to prophesy for three and a half years, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, if anyone wants to mess with them while they're prophesying and preaching the gospel, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. Now, these two witnesses, according to the context from the first two verses, are preaching on the Temple Mount. Remember, we talked about extensively a temple is constructed in Jerusalem, and they are there on the temple grounds in that area, and they're preaching. And if anybody says, I'm sick of your preaching, I don't want to hear your prophesying, and they come to stop them, fire out of their mouths, and they kill them. It's pretty gnarly. Verse 6. These also have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. Their ministry is never canceled for rain. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, because of that description, many students of Bible prophecy speculate that these two witnesses must be Moses and Elisha. Moses and Elijah. Why? Why? Because you remember it was Mo who, under the power of God, when he went before Pharaoh, was able to turn the waters into blood. And it was Mo who was able, through the power of God, really God's power, to bring the plagues upon Egypt. And because this one witness has the power to turn the waters into blood and the power to bring plagues at will, many say, this has got to be Moses. And the first one, Elijah. Why? Elijah was the one who, according to James chapter 3, prayed and the sky was shut up. It didn't rain anymore. James chapter something. It might be a different chapter. But anyway, Elijah is the one who prayed and the rain stopped from falling. He prayed and the rain fell again. And so it does seem to make some sense that this might be Eli and Mo. Besides, Eli and Mo are the baddest dudes in all of Judaism. They are the baddest dudes in the Bible. There's no greater guys in Jewish mindset and they're preaching in Jerusalem than Moses and Elijah. So it may be that this is Moses and Elijah in their glorified bodies preaching. Or in some sort of body. Who knows? And then we move on in verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, so three and a half years into the tribulation period, exactly midway, the beast, the Antichrist, that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. So three and a half years into it, the Antichrist finally says, I'm absolutely sick of this. I'm going to kill these guys. And he kills them. There's reason to believe in the study of Bible prophecy that the Antichrist has set up his world headquarters in Jerusalem that he's reigning over the one-world government and the one-world economic system and soon to be at this mark in the tribulation period a one-world religion from Jerusalem. And now he seeks to shut up the mouth of the prophets here and he kills them. And it says in verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord is crucified. That is Jerusalem. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their bodies to be laid in a tomb. Obviously, this is still future. According to the preterist view that this was already fulfilled is impossible. It says that the nations 
and the tribes and the tongues are able to look upon their bodies. Couldn't have happened in the first century. They didn't have CNN. They didn't have satellite uplinks and beams. Now, when these guys die in Jerusalem, the whole world will tune into Fox News and see it. CNN, whatever you watch. Verse 10, and those, look at this, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. It's like some sort of weird perversion of Christmas. These guys are dead, and they're making merry about them being dead, and people send gifts to one another. Verse 11, and after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell among those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven, into the cloud and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now we begin to see some people repenting in the tribulation period. God has ordained these two witnesses and their ministry mirrors that of Jesus Christ. They came to Jerusalem preaching the good news. They were killed by the political powers that were. They were raised after three days. They were preaching with great signs and wonders. After having been raised, they ascended into heaven. There was a great earthquake as there was at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and many were saved. You see, all through the tribulation period, God wants people to get saved. He's extending his mercy all in the midst of it. What an amazing way that he does it there. There's one other way, Revelation 14. Revelation 14. This one's unbelievable. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. Now, it can't be any more clear for people in the tribulation period. If they rejected God's grace during this age and we're now gone, and then they reject, the, they reject the message given by the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and they still reject the messages preached by the two witnesses, there is an angel that flies about in the sky around the whole world and says, Repent! What's going on is God's judgment. It is not mere natural catastrophes. It is God's judgment. It's time for you to repent and worship the God of the Bible. God has never done anything like that in history. It is unprecedented. You see, because of man's sin, God is forced to pour out his wrath. But because of God's love, he tempers it with mercy and grace and opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for man to repent and receive the love of Jesus Christ. God is so good. Now, there's going to be a tremendous spiritual battle going on. Your homework this week is to read Revelation chapter 12. There's going to be a tremendous spiritual battle going on. And that battle is going to manifest itself because there's this angel flying around in chapter 14 here, saying, worship the true and living God. And yet in chapter 13, everybody is told that they must worship the image of the beast. Look at it in verse 14 of Revelation 13. It says, and he, speaking to the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. Remember, he comes with lying signs and wonders. 
telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Spoke about last week, and you read it in your homework this week. The Antichrist is wounded mortally in his head, and he is raised to new life. He's either literally raised to new life, uh, resurrected, or it is a pseudo or counterfeit resurrection. Either way, the world begins to follow after him. Verse 15. And there was given to him breath, uh, uh, given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast might even speak, and causes many who do not worship the image of the beast, the Antichrist, to be killed. Look at the spiritual battle manifest in the physical realm that's taking place. Here is the false prophet with this image of the beast, which I told you last week is set up on the Temple Mount in the Holy of Holies, the abomination of desolation, and the false prophet now taking control of this one world religious system says, you must worship this image of the beast. If you don't, you will lose your life. And the angel flying about in midheaven says, don't worship the image of the beast. This is the wrath of God. Worship the God of the Bible. And now there's another angel that warns them of something very specific. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever whoever receives the mark of his name. So there's not only an angel flying around preaching the gospel, there's an angel flying around saying, do not take the mark. If you take the mark, you have expired your last chance for repentance. If you take the mark, you will be damned forever. God couldn't make it any more clear. He tells us what's going to happen in chapter 13 now, verse 16. Here's a spiritual battle. The angel's saying, don't do it. And look what's going on in chapter 13, verse 16. And he, the false prophet and the beast, causes all, the small and great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has a mark. It is either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. God is warning humanity very clearly. There is coming an Antichrist. In the tribulation period, he will force people to take the mark of the beast. In some form, whatever it is, who knows? You could speculate for days. 666, upon the right hand or upon the forehead. Without so, you will certainly physically die. You will not be able to buy or sell or trade. You and your family will starve to death. But if you do so, you are damned for eternity. And God warned us in the word about every ounce of it beforehand. And if we think the line is drawn in the sand today, can you imagine that period? There's a false prophet saying, worship the beast. There's the angel in heaven saying, don't do it. There's a false prophet saying, take the mark. And there's the angel in heaven saying, don't take that mark. That's your last chance. But God gives humanity seven last years in which they can choose Jesus Christ or Antichrist. Seven years 
where he slowly pours out his wrath to rattle man to repentance. And as we saw repeatedly, many people will be killed and many will absolutely refuse to repent. But many others will hear the Jewish evangelists and repent. They will refuse to worship the beast and take the mark of the beast, so they will be immediately killed by the Antichrist. Praise the Lord, they go to heaven. Many will be converted under the ministry of the two witnesses. And many will look in the sky and say, oh my goodness, the angel. Let's repent. There's a huge harvest according to Revelation chapter 7. Here's where we end. Look at this harvest. This is so encouraging. In the midst of all of it, God saves a huge number of people. Revelation 7 verse 9. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which nobody could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. In other words, they've been saved. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And I said to him, My Lord, you know, I don't know. This is John speaking. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. In other words, these are people that get saved in the tribulation period. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne shall spread His tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb is in the center of the throne and shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. God is merciful. God is gracious. Don't reject the mercy of God. If you're here today and you've never been saved, that means you've never come before God and said, God, I'm a sinner. I repent. I need you to save me. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Save me. Forgive me, God. You need to cry that out today. You need to cry that out today because today is the day of God's mercy. He has not dealt with you according to your sin. He wants you to be saved. Don't wait to the tribulation period. Half of humanity will perish. The decision will be harder then because it will be at the threat of your life that you receive Jesus Christ. Today is the day to do it. And Christians, it is time to get ourselves in gear. It is time to be about the Father's business. If this does not rattle you to evangelism, you're dead. If this does not cause you to be emboldened with the gospel, you're dead. God, we understand that we need to preach the gospel, your Holy Spirit. If today you know that you need the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit and you're a Christian, we'll pray for that right now. God, for those of us that need power to be your witnesses, fill us now with your Spirit, God. Come upon us as you did the church on the day of Pentecost. Fill us 
to be last days evangelists, raise up from our pastors and missionaries and so on and so forth, that we might serve you in truth, having just seen your truth. Pray that you would raise up here people to be quick to repent. Christians, I just have an exhortation that if you're playing games with God and you need to repent, today is the day to repent, Christian. It's very clear that we're living in the last days and God is asking his people, when will you repent? When will I have all of you? Lord, as best we know how today, we want to give you our all. Thank you that we look for the blessed hope of your coming. But while we wait, make us diligent with the work of the kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.